they only played one minute of it. And they said that I was dissing Eminem and they only skewed the part that made it sound that way. There was no mention of this is a guy who's praying for him. This is a guy who's a Christian. It was none of that. Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today we're going to delve into BEC Recordings, the CCM imprint of Tooth & Nail. And if you don't know what CCM stands for, it's Christian Contemporary Music. And I know you know what that is and some of its connotations. Now, BEC was spawned as Brandon and the label had wild success with bands like the Supertones. And that money was then used to develop more bands and newer sounds and newer genres. And BEC was an obvious and logical extension of what Tooth & Nail was doing that would help them grow and serve that fan base and also to collect a talented and cohesive staff that would work BEC artists, but as well as the Tooth & Nail and Solid State rosters. Now, in some ways, these are totally separate worlds, but there's more overlap than you may think. And KJ52 is a good example of that. He's a fun character with some slightly different taste and goals than, let's say, Living Sacrifice or Starflyer 59, but I think they may have more in common than it would first appear. Now, KJ knows a good bit about both worlds, and hearing him share some of these great stories and his experience and his relationships there, I think will be very helpful to us in folding the BEC into the tooth and nail story. So now let me introduce you to KJ52. It might sound a little strange, but I'm not in it just for this money or the fame. Word. Still just the same, ain't nothing ever changed. I still drive a minivan, and I ain't ashamed. So let's just talk about right at the beginning of this thing. I want to hear about how you got into Tooth and Nail and your favorite stuff in the catalog and, and con yeah. connect all this world. And we don't do a ton of stuff about BEC on this podcast. Yeah, It's because I have less familiarity with it, less relationships, less stuff like that. I think it's very interesting, and there is so much to talk about in the BEC world, but I haven't figured out how to get in over there or tell the story. I don't know it as, as natively, um, but I know you a little bit and thought we could have a really good conversation, and the stuff that's been in your book, the your book's yeah. on Spotify, is called What Happened. I've been listening to it. It's so much yeah. good stuff in there that brings up a ton of interesting things for me. But really, my angle here, to be clear with everybody, is that I would like to point out how BEC, Solid State, everything, all the way from Pedro the Lion all the way to, to Jeremy Camp, is all in the same umbrella. And so yes. to me, I'm not as interested in how are we different, because it's pretty obvious. But there's it's kind of more the same is my suspicion. And then after listening to your book yes. and thinking about it a little bit more, I'd like to try to put that together. We'll point out the differences along the way too. But that's kind of my aim on, on this convo, if it makes sense. Matt, you are spot on. Um, and it's funny because I, I certainly was very familiar with Tooth & Nail way, way before I even signed with them, uh, especially down being down here in Florida. Um, I used to hang with a lot of guys that were in the hardcore scene. You know, in Florida always had a really good hardcore straight edge uh, scene. You know, I, down where I lived in Southwest Florida, uh, this guy ran a zine called Outcast. He would bring over, you know, Strong Arm when they were starting off. Um, he brought in the prayer chain. You know, and he very much catered to that culture. And I actually grew up in a neighborhood called Ybor City, which in a lot of ways is like ground zero of the death metal scene. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like I can remember going to those type of concerts, even though I was never really in that scene. To me, those kids were like the theater kids that I hung out with or the goth kids. You know, there was always like a, a really interesting connection that I had. So I was very familiar. In fact, I, I used to joke about this with Brandon. I called in to a radio show that he was on, I think it was like maybe 95, 96, and he was just being interviewed. And I, I asked him on the on the air, I said, would you ever sign a hip hop group? And he was like, nah, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, at least not right now. And so, you know, I mean, like when I was starting off, I was just looking for any opportunity to get on a label. And um, so you're right, BC honestly was just a creation. It was the same 21 employees, whether it was Solid State, Tooth & Nail, um, that's why I love your podcast, because all the people you're talking about, like I work with them directly, constantly. You know, he had these divisions, Solid State, mm -hmm. Tooth and Nail, B 
BC. So my understanding of you, the way that I want to think about you here is to me, when I'm when I hear your story and think about it, the way you've been DIY and that you have principles that kind of undergird all the things that you do and philosophies, they may be different yes. ones than some of the other bands have. I, th- I consider you like a more of a renegade, more of a DIY person, more, and I think you identify this yes. way too. But as an outsider, even in your own scene and in this scene, yes, yes. And there may be a perception that BEC or Christian stuff is like this in group or this easy world where you do X, Y, and Z, and it's just safe and all that stuff. But I don't hear that in your story at all. I hear you going against no. the grain, having it difficult, sleeping on floors. Uh, yes. making sacrifices for stuff and you just have different sometimes objectives than maybe what yes. I'd have or some of the other the, you know tooth and nail or solid state bands would have yes and to be honest man very early in my career I realized there was more of a life in rolling with the rock guys than there was with the hip-hop dudes I mean the mm-hmm. Christian hip-hop scene or the you know indie hip-hop scene was just so tiny and so struggling for any relevance I made a choice very early on to to tour with those guys to hang with those guys to work with those guys and to completely forge a completely different path a new path because absolutely a new path and and to be honest with you like those bands that we're talking about or would be talking about um they were infinitely easier to get along with than guys in my genre Mm -hmm. uh and i just found more success in those worlds and i i I made a a point very early to go i'm just going to approach myself as music i'm not trying to um be this christian hip-hop like flag bearer, uh-huh. I'm going to get in anywhere I can fit in. And a lot, a few key moments changed that perspective. But the point being is all these bands that you're talking about, I connected with them very well. So tell me what is your main principle that you do music, you do hip hop, you clearly love it. It's an art form and yeah. all that stuff, but you have a slightly different and maybe it's true with some BEC stuff or not. You have a principle that seems very dedicated toward sharing Christ, and and that seems to be universal and hasn't changed over the years. Yes, very true, very true. Um, I think I was way more dogmatic about it in the beginning. I think now I've found a lot more space just for art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think probably what my catharsis was when I just said, I will be who I am 100%. Mm-hmm. So there is a part of me that is very much a ministry type of guy, like I was a former youth pastor. I don't separate that from my music, but then there's a part of me that just wrote songs for the sake of songs. I've opened up for every major mainstream band, you know, rap group back in the day, from a Wu-Tang to a Tribe Called Quest. You know, I hold a Guinness World Record for freestyling. You know, these things aren't necessarily ministry things. Um, I've just found a very, uh, uh, just a very piece about who I am and letting that be reflected. But ministry uh, but seems right. to be your main fuel, especially in totally. the early years, because yes. why were you doing all that hard? And and help me understand what it was like from your view. Like you didn't just walk in as this large no. Christian artist that gets paid all this no. money and types of things like nope. that. Tell me about the early years and how it was ministry that fueled you and gave you the whatever, the, the that desire to do the dirty, the hard, the unappreciated. Let's, let's converge there. You, you're absolutely right. And, and look, I was the guy who didn't grow up in church, got saved, went you know, 300% with it and looked at music or hip hop as a means to an end. So that's it. You're right. I hit the road. It was about reaching people, uh, whatever that platform was, whether that was a club, whether that was a skate park, whether that was a church. And I didn't really try to differentiate. I just was grateful for any platform. So you were having shows that were bad, except for you thought they were good if it went well in a ministry capacity. You talk a little bit about having a show for yes. five people. It's eight people to yes. get saved. There was so few slots to jump into. So anything I could take, I would take. I had to uh, to suck it up, see the bigger picture. And you didn't have any label support, so you were just doing this as an actual independent DIY artist who had a ministry bent and was just trying to figure out however to do it. Well, I got signed, and and those initial tours I did, I was signed. I just got dropped within six months. I mean, honestly, I I, I was a guy. I was an inner city youth pastor. I had a bunch of you know housing project kids. I had a dream to do the music. I got the record deal thing that never happens where you send in a demo and somebody finds it and, you know, lived my dream, living in Nashville, working on the first debut album, dropping the album, and then just having no place to go play. And the only thing was, was this thing called the extreme tour. So I booked shows from Florida all the way out to the Northwest, tried to do whatever I could. And in, you know, a typical fashion that you hear a lot of times, the label was owned by a mainstream company and what they spent versus what they sold was upside down, and I don't care what kind of ministry he does, drop him. Let's talk about that story. 
a little bit. Yeah. Well, it was provident. I mean, I was I was uh, essentially being courted by Goatee through my man Todd Collins, um, and then I floated for six months. They and then eventually they just they just wouldn't sign me. They went with John Rubin over me. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girlies from upper class America to minimum wage employees, wherever you are, wherever you at, from Columbus, Ohio to your point on the map, it's that kid John Rubin, like checking one, two, and MCs get the boot when they claim to be the shoe and not the new. And Todd unselfishly, you know, gave me over to uh, Provident, which was essential, which at the time was Third Day and Jars of Clay and those type of bands. And they just wanted to jump into the hip hop world. Uh, but I was an experiment. And in a lot of ways, I was a failed experiment. You know, what I mean, they thought they thought boy bands and hip hop was going to be the next big wave in Christian music. Mm-hmm. And certainly Christian hip hop was not the next big wave. <laughs> but they signed a ton of people. And that's when you saw Uprock come out. You know what I mean? But yeah, within six months, I was I got my letter. They're like, you're done. And that's when I really had to like go, what is this really about? I was initially being courted by Goatee mm-hmm. through Todd. And then that kind of dragged out, no contract for six months. And then Todd's like, look, they're not gonna sign you in. You know what I mean? I'm I'm one of the owners, but Toby is gonna go with somebody else. Oh, I see. And you know, he's like, So I found you another place. And uh Goatee was my dream, but it just didn't happen. And um but you know, so then to Provident, and you were only on that six months. So when you got to Provident, you thought this is going to take off, and then you went out and had a small tour. Absolutely. Well, I, it was a, it was a tour called the Extreme Tour, where it was just all rock bands, and the, I was the only headliner that would do you know the ministry piece or whatever. But it was just straight outreach. I mean, like you just roll into a skate park, you'd set up, you start doing music, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it was literally that. You know, I was in Pioneer Square in Seattle. I was right there in the middle of you know, Portland, just with the sound system, just doing the best I could. Wow. You know, I mean, we were right there in, in the Northwest. And that was honestly a huge, massive switch up for me. Uh, I didn't know anything about the Northwest, never been there, didn't understand the culture. Um, and it was sink or swim. And, you know, I'm not making any money. I'm trying to sell my, you know, my album at an outreach, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then and then the label's like, you know, we tried, but you're done. And, and I had to really figure out what my next move was going to be. Wow. So that was a, a a false start there. Did you think it was over? What, 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 how did you get to tooth and nail? I mean, uh, essentially, yeah. In some ways, I did feel it was over. It was one of those deals where I had to go dig deep and go, did, did, do I feel like God has actually called me to do this? And if that's the case, then, then the label will present itself in time. But I tried talking to at least five other Nashville labels, all the major labels, had meetings, they came out to shows. I had a plan, you know, I had a very specific plan of what my next record was going to be like. I had Dear Slim in the back pocket, you know, like I had a very clear vision and none of them would touch me. They would be like, yeah, we just want to see what happens and mm-hmm. da, 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 da. And I was just getting the runaround. Tooth and Nail com- came completely out of left field. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I was super skeptical. Um, I didn't know Brandon, but he had a bad reputation, at, at least amongst the people I knew. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. You know what I mean? Like this, this rock label that does alternative music. Brandon has a reputation of, of, you know, ripping people off and all these things. And I, honestly, I found out all these things were really unfounded, but that was what was going through my mind. And he offered me a non-exclusive deal. He literally gave me the record deal that there was no way I could say no to. Well, hang on a second. Um, here. That's pretty different. First of all, that's what. So, yes. how did you get? How did you get connected with Brandon? And we'll we'll talk about that. But non-exclusive. That's uh, very uncommon, yeah. and certainly not in the ripoff territory. Yeah. <laughs> no, and and so I was working with a guy by the name of Blake Knight, uh, who was helping produce some of the songs on my second album, and he was in a group called Ill Harmonics, and they had been signed to Tooth and Nail. And uh, I, I honestly don't remember. I I remember the conversation went like this. It was like. Hey, the artists on Uprock, the rap groups, aren't selling more than even ten thousand copies. Brandon can see that you've already done twenty thousand copies and got dropped. He goes, by default, you're going to outsell anybody that's on the label. And the initial conversation was, I want a rapper who's not afraid to chase after mainstream success. And I, when I say mainstream, just meaning not trying to keep it real, just trying to sell some records and make my, and make my music. He's like, I want, they, Brandon is looking for that type of artist. Um, and he could not seem to turn the corner. And again, this is just my, my secondhand conversation, but he couldn't turn the corner with Uprock 
Okay, so one quick aside here. Uprock Records is an imprint that was specifically supposed to be hip-hop that Tooth & Nail started, that KJ was originally going to be on. And that didn't quite work out, but that's not what we're here to cover today because KJ ultimately was in the BEC family. So maybe we'll get back to Uprock. I hope we can. There's some more story to tell there, but it doesn't quite belong in this episode. He was sinking money into the artists, and it wasn't turning into sales. And he's like, look, if we just even do minimal effort with you, you're still going to outsell it. And I said, not only am I going to try to sell records, I got a full plan on what I want to do. So he came back with this non-exclusive deal that he literally said, if you want to go sign to somebody else at the same time, I'm totally fine with that. Here's the deal. That's it crazy. was a three album deal. It, exactly. I was like, who does this? I was like, nobody does this. I'm like, it would be foolish of me to say no. But even in the back of my head, I'm like, ah, I'm going to go get another deal with a Nashville label. And, and Tooth and & Nail did such a good job that for those next three albums, I could have gone somewhere else and I chose not to. Like they did such a great job that it was night and day compared to my Nashville experience. And how many did you end up selling on those records? Well, the second, that that, this is what's again, so funny about the whole situation. And I talk about it in my book is that the first album did 20,000 second album did over a hundred thousand. Wow. And the same first label came back and tried to resign me. Wow. Which you could do because it was non-exclusive. Which I could do. And I turned them down and they ended up re-putting out the same album again. And the same album came back and did like another 75,000 records. Wow. So like, it was like mind blowing. But I, I realized very quickly that the tooth and nail way of doing things versus the Nashville way was night and day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had seen how Nashville had overspent on everything, but I'm the one that ends up suffering. That's Whereas right. tooth and nail was like, make quality records, Make them cheap. Make them cheap. And it really, all, it's funny thing was, it, all, it really came down to booking a hotel and it was mind blowing. Whereas I would be stuck in a hotel with a Nashville label at full rate for a month and it's just running up my budget. Whereas Tooth and Nail was the first label I'd ever heard of that would price line their hotels. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it wasn't like they were sticking me in the Motel 6. They put <laughs> me in a decent hotel, but they'd price line it. And it was so much more fiscally responsible that I thought, oh, of course. You know, yeah. Brandon, again, to his credit, I would do a photo shoot and he would go buy your clothes and then he goes, just return the ones you don't you don't wear. Yeah. That point is very important to, to realize that that Brandon and Tooth and Nail recognized this really big gap between what a major label was doing and, and its inefficiency or giant labels or you know, yes. they're swinging for the fences looking for the multi platinum X, Y, or Z. Uh, and then yes. Brandon realized that the times had changed and it's possible to make a bunch of money selling tens of thousands of, of copies, if not hundreds of thousands, and then keep all the money. Yes. Now, that requires you be frugal. And then when you begin to yes. be frugal and have lower salaries and Priceline hotels and put pressure on for you know hundreds of dollars here or there, then it's not that hard to get a reputation, especially when you've sold hundreds of thousands or millions of records. It's not hard to get a reputation. Yes. But really, you're figuring out a new system to empower growth. Yes. And then even this whole BEC side, this is in the exact yes. time after Brands with the merger and he's trying experiments and he figures out many ways to maximize sales and money to utilize to continue to grow the entire indie Christian, this whole scene. He'd be he's able to continue to do it um, by having his foot in a bunch of areas and optimizing them. And so you come along at just the right time to be part of that story. Well, I didn't know that that you could do that. Like again, the excess and the decadence and the and the Nashville side was just I thought that's the way you're supposed to do things. You know, and granted it's the early two thousands, you know, like everybody's selling, you know, a jillion records. And we were you know, they were owned by Jive. So it was like, you know, I'm up against Britney Spears. The problem was the pressure level was so high. Like you had to come out the gate and do a hundred thousand records. Whereas Tooth and Nail was like, they were they basically said if you just do what you did the last time, we have a success. Not a drop. You know? Yeah, it's a success. Not a the drop. Same number, same fans. Yeah. And, and the other thing that was interesting is that he was completely hands off. Like Nashville was three hundred percent trying to guide the conversation <laughs> on every angle, without really knowing anything about hip hop or CCM. And granted, Yuck. we were all trying to figure it out at the time. But I'm saying I had my AR, my, the label head. Everybody was at the photo shoot. Everybody was trying to buy the clothes. Everybody's trying to style you. Everybody's trying to image you. Yep. Everybody kind of has an idea of what the music is supposed to sound like, but they're making it up as go along. Whereas Brandon was just more like, hey, I just want you to do a song with Aaron Sprinkle and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was just a totally different approach 
And, you know, and I, I was really blessed to have a guy by the name of Todd Collins in my corner who, again, was one of the goatee owners, but ended up still staying with me even when I got dropped. Like he produced the records and, you know, he was able to, you know, help guide that ship in a lot of ways, too. So, again, I, I would probably end up only talking to Brandon maybe once a year, if that, maybe twice a year. That's it. Yeah, he's always been hands off, and like you said, he farms out things that he to people that are talented that he trusts. Aaron Sprinkle is a good one. Brandon doesn't need yes. to give all the feedback on the songs if Aaron Sprinkle is working on it. You see, I mean, therefore yeah. he gets to be hands off, but he's completely hands on in his development and selection. And Sprinkle is brilliant. Yes, Sprinkle's brilliant. You know that. So there, we're in good. Everybody's in good shape with minimal middle management. So that's it's a big win for everybody, artists and right business. But, but let me also say, I didn't I didn't work with Aaron till three records in. So it was it was a little way down the road. But when I did, it actually became those songs that I did with Aaron ended up being some of the biggest songs I had done. Mm -hmm. That record was your 2000. What year was that? Five, you did with Sprinkle in 07 or something like that? Uh, the, no, the first one I did was with was with Aaron in 2005. 2005. I did a song called Are You Real that featured Cutlass. I need to know that you're real because I'm struggling. You need to show that you're here because I'm stumbling. Show me that you care. This is why I'm saying this. I just remember I like I walked in and Aaron was passed out on the couch like I'm like okay I guess this can be a different kind of session <laughs> like he had been up all night working and I never forget he was like and I and he kind of rolled out and he's like rubbed his eyes and he was like let's get some coffee and I remember looking at him thinking like this guy kind of looks like Frodo Baggins like he just reminded me of like this <laughs> this 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 tiny man with this just incredible music knowledge and I connected with him immediately. And I just remember we were both super tired and burnt out, and we just sat there. So then you wind up being part of the Tooth and Nail family. So, you know, I love asking people this this uh, question though. But what Tooth and Nail catalog songs are impactful or became impactful for you? Yeah, uh, Stephen Christian booked me for a show in like '96, way before he became Amberlynn. He used to run this little club in Winter Haven, and I remember when he did a cover of The Cure's. Uh, Dang it, I can't remember which cover he did. It was uh, one of the top five Cure songs. Anyway, that song was huge. I had never heard somebody reinterpret a Cure song like that, even though I wasn't a massive Cure fan. I just knew the music, and I knew the kids that like were you know, into that, uh, and I always loved his tone. Like for me, it was like meeting TFK when they first started. Um, you know, one of the songs that they did actually really impacted a childhood friend whose marriage had been broken up. And because of that song, it actually helped put their marriage back together. And it was at a TFK concert that I was opening up for. I got to introduce them wow. to them. What TFK song? So it was called uh, I Wish You Well. And it was one of those deals where they had actually been divorced and the ex-husband and the wife had both been listening to the same song on the radio. And it was this really sad song about like, hey, we've broken up, but I wish you well. And be ironically, they're both listening to it, thinking of each other. Uh, the person I'm talking about was a girl that I had known since I was really young. I said, why don't you come to the show? TFK is gonna be there. And that became, that was their first date that eventually led to their remarriage. Cause you never know when it's gonna fall down on you. I wish you well, I wish you well On this trip to find yourself I wish you well, wish I could help But I can't help you find yourself And I thought this is bizarre because like you hear stuff about their own music, but to know that like your friend helps that ha help that happen. Um, so like just to, to see that, to see that, that connection, stuff like that. I mean, 
you know, me and Jeremy Camp got signed like right around the same time. I remember being in, you know, Brandon's Benz and he's like, I, I found this guy, check it out. And I thought this dude is going to be a whole new level for, for Tooth and Nail. was that that was oh two that was when he first flew me out and i'm I, i'll be honest with you man I'm, I'm a lyric guy i'm a lyric guy and i'm a groove guy so like i want to hear what you're saying and i want to understand it so a lot of the times some of the tooth and nail music was just so abstract i didn't understand you know what the content was about and i understand it's a different type of vibe give me an example but, of something you didn't get that other people were liking you mean like like a song you mean yeah that a, I did a, like? an artist on tooth and nail that you didn't understand vibe with like that like you're saying well, honestly, it was like 90% of them. I mean, like, you know, it would it would be like, like I knew Ryan because he would do my covers. He was the most, I didn't know he was Demon Hunter. You know, I just knew he's like the phenomenal graphic designer guy. Mm-hmm. He's sweet, soft-spoken. And then Demon Hunter is like our winter of oppression. You know, I'm like, what? I don't, like, I'm like, summer what? I, I'm totally, conf- yeah, summer of darkness. I'm like, he seems so normal and nice. I'm like, are you really going through this much pain? You know, like, and the titles were always these really abstract titles and like, <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like it yeah. just I didn't I didn't understand. So like even just the fact that you know screamo music, like you're literally screaming. Uh I can't understand what you're saying. I get the music is for it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an energy and a vibe and it's a release. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's really less lyric driven per se. But I just as a, as an MC, I want to know what you're saying and how you're saying it and saying it in a way that's creative. Um, again, not that those aren't. I just call you know maybe that's just my pop leanings. Sure. So something like a Jeremy Camp where. It is very straightforward. It is very graspable. It has a little bit of creative twinge to it. Um, maybe that makes me a pop sellout. I'm okay with that. What's your favorite <laughs> Jeremy Camp? What What's a Jeremy Camp song for people to go? I don't think I like that though. You know, it's cheesy or something. Yeah, what, what, I get it. Point them to a song. You tell them why you like it. Well, it, it, the song that I covered, which was called "Right Here," and it was just it's this perspective from God saying, "Everywhere I go, you know, I know you're right here." And while that's such a simple truth, it's like when you've hit rock bottom and your label has dropped you and you have no money and you're going in debt and you you bet the farm on everything, man, I need to hear in that moment that God is right there with me. You know what I'm saying? I don't need to struggle to understand what you're trying to say to me. So that those songs, while they are trite and simple and basic, there's sometimes you need that. You know what I mean? And music is like food where... Uh, there are times where I want some complex gourmet, super ethnic type food. And there's sometimes I just want a freaking burger, man. Like, let me just bite into it and taste the goodness. And it's simple. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and, and that's, you know, that's why one of the songs by Cutlass that I was touring with him at the time was called, you know, why do you run? Why do you hide? It's from God's perspective. Um, and you, so, you have that down in your book as a, as just grabbing a burger? To an extent, yeah. I think those songs, those are grab a burger songs because you know what you're biting into, right? You know what that tastes like, right? And there's times where you just want comfort food. And to me, some of those songs are literally comfort food because when you've hit a sucky situation, I don't want an esoteric abstract uh, understanding of this, this, this. I just want to know someone's going to stand with me and go, dude, you are going to make it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 a lot of my career was about that. But also, man, I toured with these guys. So like, it was one thing to just know the music. It's another thing to like, I'm living with them day in, day out. All I toured with was rock bands. That was it. So you're hanging out with Cutlass and Jeremy Camp and touring with them. And I do feel like we're yeah. in the same umbrella here. And when you call that yeah. grabbing a burger or comfort food, there are some people that yeah. don't like the sound of that. Um, and yep. that's okay. So yeah. the reason that that works for you is because even more fundamental is that music is a package and a vessel 
to achieve a higher goal though, right? Yes, to an extent, yes. But again, to me, Stephen Christian redoing a, a Cure song, like that's a pure, just artistic song, right? Mm-hmm. From a great guy with a great tone, with a great voice. Right. It's no different than how much I love the police. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm not necessarily relating to the content, but you can't help but appreciate something done in excellence with a uniqueness to it. So um, if you're making that, but, but, but you're saying you can make a simpler song for people that, and here's another one where I think it maybe diverges a little bit, but you're making sometimes within this world music for people who aren't the most avid fans of music, but they're people that, all, that utilize and use and listen to music, but in a more passive way. Can you speak to that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Well, listen, that was a, that was a hard part for me because I'm a MC. I wear a backpack. I do graffiti art. You know what I mean? I came up breakdancing. I came up in the hood and in the suburbs. Like there's the art and the culture of hip hop. But I'm stuck in this CCM world in some tiny Baptist church in the middle of nowhere because that's the basis of what this genre comes from, trying to dilute this into a way that they can relate to or connect with. And the thing was, it's like I would do these dumb throwaway songs that were literally just hidden tracks, right? Mm-hmm. It's some dumb thing about a Mountain Dew drink or something like that. <laughs> I roll in. I roll in and th- and that's all they want me to do. <laughs> and I'm like, do you not hear this stuff that's over hilarious. here where I'm like pouring my heart and my guts and my you know creativity and my lyricism? They're like, no, we just want you to like do some two minute cheese ball song about a cheeseburger and a fry and a Coke. And I'm like, I'm at a crossroads because I'm like, dude, if I do this, this isn't really artistically what I want to do. But I, you know what I mean? But I'm like, OK, fine. I guess if they want cake, give them cake. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's when I started to understand like the underbelly of what the CCM market was, that it was like, you know, you had to appeal to this small town, uh, Midwestern, you know, youth group culture. Hey, everybody, it's Zach from Citizens. One problem that's continuously plagued us as a band is that we actually have too many fans. And so one of the things that we're trying to do this fall is go on tour, because once you hear us live, you probably will never listen to us again. If you live in or near Des Moines, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Fort Wayne, Totowa, New Jersey, Washington, DC, Lynchburg, Virginia, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Nashville, Tennessee, please go to wearecitizens.net, get your tickets. We just put out a new record called Fear, and there's more coming. Whatever it takes to get you to stop listening. have the best fans in the world but one band can't have all the best fans so we got to get rid of a few which is why we're bringing along with us ghost ship the eagle and child and ally page because once you listen to all of us you'll probably never listen to music again go to wearecitizens.net and get your tickets today Can you tell me in your in your mind what's the distinction? What's the difference in uh, Solid State, Tooth and Nail, and BEC? Well, I mean, BEC was running the run, you know, right in the middle. It was Tooth and Nail's attempt to get in that they had been pushed out of. You know, what I'm saying like OC Supertone selling all those records, getting no dub nominations. You know, what I'm saying they should have been, you know, given those those looks in the CCM market. I think that's what BEC was. It was the idea of going, okay, fine, you know, we'll play your game. Um, and that's why groups like, uh, you know, Cutlass or Jeremy camp and eventually myself all found ourselves on BEC. Again, it was just the same 21 employees, whereas solid state, like that's way over to the other side. You know what I'm saying? Like those groups maybe might, you know, flirt with the CCM industry, but they are off playing clubs and, and they're going to be an alternative press magazine. You know what I mean? And tooth and nail is sort of that somewhere happy medium between the two in my opinion, you know what I mean? And I would connect with all these guys in some way, shape or fashion, probably less the solid state guys. Um, but I, 
you know, and then and then there's Uprock, which is over here, which is like this attempt at doing Christian hip hop, and it's just struggling. What is the same about Tooth and Nail, Solid State, and BEC? That the same execution applies to all of them, meaning do records that are done high quality, but at a low cost, that are done you know visually well, and that are are allowing the artists to be themselves. You know what I'm saying? It's like equip people to be a ten at what they're already a ten. So that was what I saw. And the funny thing was, like, I would be working with guys that were solid state, you know, employees. Never once did they, like, give me the shaft because I'm this random white youth pastor kid from Florida doing Christian rap. There was never a distinction of, well, I'm not going to work for you. Like, I'm not connecting with your music. Like, everybody worked equally hard no matter who I dealt with. Interesting. On any aspect. Now, you know, in in this podcast, even we've covered that a decent amount to where there is, yeah. without a doubt, and there has been uh, over the years, in, in every time period, I believe, an undercurrent of people who were snobbier and did not treat certain artists well. That's always existed, in, in my view. You didn't ever feel that way at all? Well, they, well maybe, maybe I didn't know enough to know that. And again, I didn't necessarily, oh, I wasn't always working directly with the label. I was working with one A&R at Uprock to an extent. But I'll be honest with you, I think I was just such an anomaly that they couldn't even have a snobby opinion to me. You know what I'm saying? That's like, cool. That's good to hear. I was, I was the, I wouldn't even say the black sheep. I was like the adopted, you know, <laughs> kid <laughs> that comes for Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, you can't even figure out exactly what I am. We're just going to be nice to him because he just, mm-hmm. you know, is is doesn't fit the mold. But they couldn't deny. I mean, I was selling records. You know what I mean? My first album did a hundred thousand. Second album did another hundred fifty thousand. You know, third album did a hundred fifty thousand. So I was moving units, which was never. It had never happened. I was like one of three artists to ever break a hundred thousand in Christian hip hop. Period. Yeah, I think the hip hop thing is part of it. But you know, because if you're some band that's really cool indie cred it's easier to criticize another band that does the same yeah. a similar thing with similar instruments as you i think in in being in hip-hop you it's like yeah. oh that's different at least like it's less directly comparable yeah. to be snobby about and then on top of that you have an obviously real personality and come from where you come from and it's authentic yes. enough that it and it's you know you're, you have a strong enough personality and you're comfortable with yourself in a way that i think tends to yes. cause people to accept you as you are yeah, and I wasn't looking for validation either. I wasn't looking for best friends at the label. I'm just like, do your job. That's it. That's all I care about. And granted, I had a manager at the time, and she was probably dealing with most of that. So, you know, she would complain constantly. But, you know, I mean, like, all everyone I dealt with was always cool, uh, but I did not need them to stroke my ego. You know what good, I mean? Good, I'm good. like, that's I did not need that. Love I it. needed you just to send my single out, give me some flats that I can sell, Make sure my music arrives on time, and we're good. So you're doing and business you know then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like you know, make it happen. <laughs> well, where does under? Now tell me about get back to that term underbelly, Christian music industry <laughs> underbelly. Now, 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 build that one in here. I just I didn't listen again. I grew up in Florida, right? I had never known anything but Florida. I didn't know that there was an entire and Florida is an anomaly in itself. Like the secular sacred divide is completely different. The understanding of mainstream versus Christian market is very different. We're not Bible Belt, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a whole world where you can just tour youth groups. You know what I mean? I didn't know there's a whole world that will bring you out just to do one dumb song that has nothing to do with Jesus, right? I didn't understand any of this, but I'm like, okay, I, 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 I fell flat on my face on my first record. If this second record is connecting, far be it from me to bite the hand that feeds me. But also— to be honest with you, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to build bridges. Like, and and there's a there's a lot of artistic pushback that I did behind the scenes. But my manager and my and my my producer was like, look, if you're willing to compromise here down the road, you'll do what you want to do. And and I was like, all right, fine. I'll smile on my pictures. All right, fine. I'll grow my hair out. All right, fine. I'll do a rap rock song. I don't even like rap rock, but I'll do it if that's what it takes. Like, I'll do it. What rap rock song did you do? Well, any like anything I did with Aaron was always like a rap rock thing. You know what I'm saying? And that was not my thing. I was like, I'm not into rage. I'm not into like kid rock. I don't I think those things are like compromised. Now down the road I began to appreciate it, but I'm like, get those guitars out of my beats, you know? <laughs> well, 
Um, you did the song with Aaron Sprinkle and Toby from Emory that is a rap rock song right. that sounds like, yes. you know, it sounds like Aaron Sprinkle doing a Linkin Park song. And then to- I recorded those yes. vocals in my parents' garage yes. and, and uploaded them to Aaron. He called me and said, can you sit, can you get Toby to sing this and send it to me? I said, okay. And then uploaded it. Did that. And that, sounds, that song sounds like Linkin Park to me, right? Can I tell you something about that song? Yeah. I was scared to death to put that track out. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I thought that song was going to ruin my career. I thought everybody was going to hate it. I thought there's no way some dude screaming is going to work with me rapping. Like, I'm like, this is the worst possible fusion. I love Toby. I loved his heart. And if the irony was we never actually talked on the phone. It was all through instant messenger. I loved his heart, his depth. I love what he did. And I thought this song will ruin my career. And the irony was it was it was massive. Like, it was the first thing I ever got spun on radio. It was, and guys that were like straight up hip hop heads, especially my DJ, who was like a Puerto Rican guy from, you know, Brooklyn, was like, dude, I love that song. I'm like, you like that song? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, of all the things I've done, this is the one you like. And I, and, and it just shows that I don't know, I, I, I've never been the smartest. I was just willing to listen and try. I was willing to try and fail. And, um, that happened over and over and over. That's the only thing I could ever say about my career is that I was willing to try and fail. Well, so that song is called Wake Up uh, from 2008, yeah. and it was nominated for a Dove Award, one of, I am know. I right, 16 <laughs> Dove Awards you've been nominated for? A ton. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen nominations I've got here. Yeah, it, at one point <laughs> I had more Doves than anybody else. In, wow. the, in the genre. Okay, so another quick aside here. If you don't know what the Dove Awards are, they're the Christian equivalent to the Grammy Awards, of course, and they hold a big conference and awards show every year in Nashville. And here's a TV commercial for it. Get ready for television's most inspiring night of music. And the Dove Award goes to... The 41st Annual GMA Dove Awards, Sunday, April 25th at 8, 7 Central. It was getting to the point where I was like starting to feel guilty about winning because, you know, the Christian hip hop scene was starting to come up. Lecrae was starting to come up and these guys were getting passed over just like I got passed over 10 years before. And I'm like, this is the last thing I want to be is the CCM white boy youth group Mm -hmm. rapper kid who's beating out all the black guys for a genre that, you know, I'm a guest in that house. Did people make noise about that and think that was like really awful of the Christian industry to finally get this? Absolutely. Look, again. I, I came in, you know, at a time where white guys doing hip hop was a very much an anomaly. I would generally be the only white dude at the mainstream thing. I was the only white guy at the, at the open mic. I grew up in a neighborhood that was predominantly black and Hispanic. So I was always very respectful to the perception, right? And obviously white artists have a history of appropriating black culture and exploiting it. And I was like, no, this is not what I will be defined by, but I can't help who gravitates to me. Uh-huh. So here I come. I'm now dubbed the Eminem of Christian rap or whatever, and this undercurrent of backlash starts to happen. And now CCM's like, okay, you're our new guy. Here, have a Dove Award for a remix album. I'm like, come on, guys. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, So you you may, you won an album of the year for KJ52 Remixed, yes, which was I beating won. out a bunch of other rappers who had original yes. stuff that were yes. not white. So that's starting exactly. to look bad no matter how you, you get, get right. there. And, and, and it was literally when Lecrae was starting to come up and here it is, you know, I, I mean, it was like, I can't, I can't help that I won. And I wasn't going to like say, screw everybody that voted for me. It was just me going, this is getting to be a little bit dangerous. And I actually won two blank double awards that year. They handed me two on accident. <laughs> I took them and I put Lecrae's name on them and I mailed it to him. I said, here, these are the two double awards that you should have had. And if you never get one, just know that I recognize your art. And that's actually one of the chapters in my book is about this, this CCM industry and what it, what it meant to like all of a sudden be embraced. And that was, a, it was an odd time because all of a sudden BC was starting to get embraced. Mm-hmm. I won tooth and nails first Dove award. I won the first one. And then 10 minutes later, Jeremy camp won. So it was like, I always thought that was the biggest slice of irony that a rapper wins the first tooth and nail Dove award. And then Jeremy camp wins the second one. But that's when Tooth and Nail started getting like kind of accepted. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, so and, that's 2003. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. It was a weird time. And so you come from this background too of growing up being, um, the way you put it, a minority. Let me, let me clarify. I, I lived in Ybor city, which was straight up hood, you know, only white kid in the neighborhood, but I also lived with my mom in the suburbs. So I bounced back and forth and then summertime I'd go to North Michigan. So like I had every possible perspective you can imagine, but I wanted to be accepted by the, the people that started this genre. So like, it's like, I'm looking for acceptance of my music from my peers and my peers were black and brown in that respect. But like anything, as you get popular, you can't help but have a large white fan base. And <laughs> through, you know what I mean? Like it is what it is. There's just more white people. So I'm now playing, you know, all these major Christian festivals, Christian tours. In fact, I even headlined the white privilege conference in 2002. Okay, this is way before white privilege was a thing. I get a show offer that says white privilege conference. I'm like, I'm not playing. This sounds like a white privilege There's a conference thing. called the white privilege conference in 2002. Still, what is yep, it? This is this is way before it was cool to talk about, you know, being woke and all this stuff. But it was literally a conference about the concept of white privilege. Weird. And it was fully diverse. And they said, we want you to be like our gospel group. And I'm like, you want a white guy to headline the white privilege conference? <laughs> white rapper. I'm like, this is insane. And once I understood it, I'm like, okay, cool. I'll go do it. And it was in Iowa of all places. But the point is, is that I was, I was highly aware of all these things. My youth group at the time that I had left, that I was, you know, was 99% black kids. Uh, you know, I just lived in a very diverse world that I always wanted to never be perceived as the guy that did not respect the culture, that was trying to appropriate the culture and trying to exploit the culture. I swore I'd never be that guy. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward and fill in the gaps to a time in the future when you are officially named by VH1 to have had right. one of the most 40 <laughs> embarrassing moments in hip-hop, and it's along the lines of what you just described as your fear. Yes. So let's do yes. that. <laughs> let's do yes. the whole story. Great. Good times. Good times. It's obviously unavoidable that you're going to get the Eminem comparison here. You're winning the yes. Dove Award. You know, you, you you enter the scene at the time where he explodes. And you're aware of the phenomenon of when there are Christian artists, they're often targeted, oh labeled, or even built to be the Christian yes. version of this. So clearly yes. everybody knows that you were developed by a major label. Of, <laughs> you, were, you were grown in a lab, ran through a program that copied Eminem, and then you were manufactured by the corporate elites to then be the Christian Eminem, right? Is that how it happened? Of course. Okay. I, I used to love those freaking those freaking <laughs> label things. And it would, it would always be so inaccurate. And the funny thing is, I remember like the first time someone was like, oh, you're like, you know, this this Christian Slim Shady. I'm like, I, my album was out before his was. Like, how would I even copy them? You had it, an album before really, he did. Yeah, like my first album was done in 98. His came out in 99. So I'm thinking like, how could I sit here and try to copy? But it didn't matter. Mine dropped in 2000. And it really did not matter when you're talking about, again, the church world. Sure. They just, they just were like, if you like A, here's B. Right. And so I spent like the first year trying to fight it. And then I said, you know what? Look, if that helps you, you know, in some way, shape or fashion, then far be it for me to fight it. You know, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and, and, and keep it moving. And that's really where Dear Slim came out of. I didn't think he'd hear it. I didn't know he'd get a copy of it. I didn't know I'd talk to his ex-wife. I didn't know I'd wind up on TRL. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and it's funny, there's a Brandon story in that because, you know, at the time, Tooth and Nail had a connection with MTV2. So they said, we're going to do the Dear Slim video. We'll send it to MTV2. MTV2 said, we're going to consider it. And then we all forget about it. A month goes by and literally Brandon gets a call from MTV out of nowhere. I'm in Canada of all places. And they said, we're playing it tomorrow on TRL and we're going to make it controversial. Wow. Like they told them that. Well, and they did. They, what was that? When you wrote exactly the song, what, what was your intent? Honestly, I was just doing what rappers do. Like, it's like you got something on your mind. You talk about it. It's just a stream of consciousness. I took what was done in the mixtape world. The mixtape world was like, if you wanted to talk to somebody, um, if you wanted to talk to somebody in the mixtape world, uh, in the, in the hip hop world, you took their beat and you rapped to them. Like that was a thing. So I was taking the idea of Stan, like you would do on a mixtape and I'm rhyming directly to him and just saying what I wanted to say, not in an abrasive way or an obnoxious way, but this is what I got to say. Yo, dear Slim, I never wrote you all been calling. 
My name ain't Stan, son, nah, we never met him My name's KJ, let me begin by introducing now Myself to you and these very reasons I'll be writing Why I took the time in the who and where and why And the purpose of my verse and the reasons I'm reciting What I hope you're learning from the truth, I pray you'll find it And every word I'm writing down upon the dotted lines See, I heard your first album's called Infinite. I, heard it. I shook my head, cause nowadays you sounding different. different. What drove you take your whole persona and be flipping it now? What makes a man totally change? I ain't getting it. Get it. See, was you sick of getting booed when you was ripping it? You sick of never having dough and you want to put an end to it? What goods are kinds of dough? Plus all kinds of flow. You gain a world of fans, but so the lost of soul. To whom I make a certain. So you kind of like acknowledging the comparison there and getting ahead of it in a way? I wish I could tell you that I was that intelligent and that smart at 27. I just was writing a song and I wrote it at like two in the morning and that was literally it. I didn't even think I was going to put it out. I just did it at a show and people lost their minds. And so when I got the deal with Tooth and Nail, I'm like, well, it's got to go on this first album. You know what I mean? It's garnering too much reaction. But I mean, look, it, it, it went sideways. I mean... TRL took it, made it controversial. VH1. What? How did they make it controversial? Like, what was that? They only played one minute of it, and they said that I was dissing Eminem, and they only skewed the part that made it sound that way. There was no mention of this is a guy who's praying for him. This is a guy who's a Christian. It was none of that. It was just like this guy's a hater. He's going after Eminem. What? You be the judge. Here's this video. Boom, and then they cut it off. So it's like, mm-hmm. like, and it came out of left field, three hundred percent. Like I, I'm just literally. Stuck in a in a car in Canada, listening to my wife hold it up to the t- TV set. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, what? That's not even the song. Like, come on, you know? Like, and then getting death threats over it, and getting like this massive backlash from because I I started getting backlash from the Christian rap industry where these guys are like, you're making us look bad. You know, you're doing this for for attention. Blah 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 blah. Oh, because you made other Christian rapper now Christian rappers look bad because of what you did. Like as a whole, you know, I'm say. sure I'm sure some of it had to do with jealousy. I'm sure some of it had to do with misconception. I mean, look, rappers are sensitive like you would not even believe like, you know, so I was getting Christian rappers writing diss songs about me. I was getting mainstream rappers writing diss songs about me. I'm getting dragged through the mud, you know, in the in literally the highest level of media you could imagine. I mean, MTV's TRL, there was nothing bigger than that. No, you know, and all the while I'm just trying to like get out of this apartment that I'm living in and hopefully like pay my bills this month, Wow! you know, off a song I wrote on a whim. And then when but, the VH1 show is even, even worse. Right. And that's, what's funny. Cause again, every time I thought this was over, something else would happen. So like, it was like years later, years later, VH1 puts out the 40 least hip hop moments. And <laughs> I step off a plane, I step off a plane and my friend leaves me a voice. And I'm like, yo man, they're doing you dirty, man. And he just hangs up. I'm like, what? He's like, <laughs> And basically what they said was, you know, I was one of the least hip hop moments for simply praying for Eminem. Oh, wow. And, you know, and again, I'm like, how do they even know I'm on their radar? Like, I, that's what was mind blowing. So then, like, again, another couple of years go by. I talk to Eminem's ex-wife while she's in jail. Another couple of years go by. Wow. He writes a response. At least in my opinion, it seemed like a response. What yeah. is that? Uh, he had a verse called Be Careful What You Wish For, where he talks about, you know, a, a fan who had been praying for him has been weighing on his mind heavy and he basically just was like you know i appreciate it uh but i already got god on my side you know what i'm saying and i can't guarantee that's about me but it really sounds like it you know what i mean i got a letter from a fan that said he's been praying for me every day and for some reason it's been weighing on my mind heavy because i don't read every letter i get but something told me to go ahead and open it but why would someone pray for you when they don't know you you didn't pray for me when i was local and as i lay these vocals i think of all the shit i had to go through just to get to where i'm at i've already told you at least a thousand times in these rhymes i appreciate the prayer but i've already got i mean that's but again that's almost eight years after i wrote the song every time i thought this chapter was over it's like some other thing out of left field would happen yeah, it's hard, you know, when you get tagged as a thing, you know, you're, you spend your whole time trying to create an identity and have a splash and be unique. And sometimes the thing that you get tagged with or is unique about you or easiest to explain you with is not something that you that you want or something that unfolds in an unfortunate way like that. That is 300% <laughs> well, accurate. But is it is the Eminem comparison in a way helpful as a whole? Like if there were no Eminem, would you be better or worse off? 
No, there's no question. My success is linked to his success because that's the other thing I learned. Look, I'm just a hungry young white kid wants to rap and loves Jesus and like is from the suburbs, the hood and the rural part of Michigan. (laughs) I didn't know any of this was going on. I didn't know being this comparison would help, but I can't help but say the thing that I as an artist would be irritating to me was also the thing that helped me. It's probably what's maintained me for all these years. You know what I mean? Years later. I mean, I don't deal with those comparisons now, but initially, you know, it's a weird industry where it's almost all based on if you like A, here's B. Yep. Yep. You can't you can't necessarily be art for art's sake. I mean, you can, but all the rappers I knew that were doing that were ended up, you know, getting dropped or quitting. So what else is it like over on the BEC side of life? Uh, what are the stereotypes that are true about the Christian industry that that you would confirm that that people suspect from the outside or or deny either one. I mean, listen, I got into it with very pure motives, like very like you know. Again, I left the church world to do the music. So, but also I, I'd seen so much bad things in the church world that I was at least smart enough to know. I, I used to think the CCM industry had these very lofty goals, and then I just realized that it's like anything. There are people with very pure motives doing it for very good reasons. They're very authentic and they're very good people. And there's complete charlatans that will take you for everything you have. And and I just realized it's no different than any other anything else. Meaning I also didn't expect much, but I also didn't lower my expectations. I was just realistic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the thing that I noticed about Tooth and Nail was interesting because like you go to Tooth and Nail and like half the staff is outside smoking cigarettes and they're at the bar and they're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yep. some of these dudes are not just straight up, not Christians at all. And, and probably part of the dogmatic side of me thought like, oh, this is a problem. Like this is not right. Over time, I realized that most of my dogma over stuff had no scriptural basis. It was just church, churchianity that had been drilled into my skull. And if this guy who got hired in the mail order, who is a straight up atheist who smoke chain smokes constantly and might be borderline alcoholic, cool, let's go hang out, man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'd rather be your friend and know where you stand than someone who's faking the funk. You know what I mean? So like I just stopped putting unrealistic expectations on anything. And I realized the only person I really could control was myself. And that was it. And I'll be honest with you, I connected with the guys from the tooth and nail world and that world way more than I did with the Christian rap scene. And even the super pop CCM AC scene, I didn't connect with that either. But are some of those people fake like people are afraid of? Some of the big, large artists, are they full of it that people don't know? Absolutely. 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 Just no different than anywhere else. Is that okay? And why don't we say their names? Where are we at with that? Like, why don't we explain that to people, that there's charlatans? Uh, I think, well, I think that here's the difference. I think back then, before the advent of social media, uh, everything could be hidden way better, right? Mm -hmm. So now I think people's true character comes through sooner or later, right? So maybe a, this is a totally different thing, but maybe a uh, Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church could have existed underneath the radar and gotten away with some of those things that eventually took him down and took the church down, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas now we live in a hyper, you know, all eyes are on you. Sooner or later, they're going to find out what you did. You get what I'm saying? Well, it, so maybe. Anyone that, do you, no, <laughs> well, you don't think so? Okay. Well, it puts maybe us I'm in the wrong. middle, though, because now people are going to be better than ever at hiding certain things. And on the other hand, there's this really gray area where it's more subtle. I think. Well, and if you care to know, here, here, I think you can see who's fake and who's not. Here's what I realized. I just knew that sooner or later, it all caught up to you. Mm-hmm. Whether it was out in the public or whether it was not, if you're burning people for money, if you are, you know, saying one thing but living something else, it just caught up to you sooner or later. It's like, I don't have to drop a dime on you, man. You drop a dime on yourself sooner or later. Yep. No, you know what I mean, so I, sure. I, just, I just got to a point where I didn't really care. It's like, you know what? If you're banging chicks after the show, that's on you. you sooner or later, one of them's going to get pregnant and you're going to have to deal with the repercussions <laughs> of what you did. Yeah. That's just what's going to happen, right? Yeah. So do I really need to expose you? Nah, you're going to expose yourself sooner or later. I'm better off keeping all my energy and my bandwidth on myself and just maintaining integrity, 
you know, and I feel like that's what's kept me for 20 years. Longevity you know is a mean? big deal. Yeah, you're right. You'd, you'd have, I mean, there's plenty of opportunity for people to make mistakes and then come out or let their own mistakes just take them down on a practical level. Yes. So would you say yes. then, would you advocate on the other side, and you can name names here, who are the really good individuals that are making, they're really great people doing the right things for the right reasons that everybody would be happy to know them deep down and they would be either pleasantly surprised or, or verified that these are great people and this just happens to be the music and, uh, you know, calling that they're up to. Well, it's weird. Like, I played a show with Jeremy Camp, like, literally a couple weeks ago, and I have not seen this guy in a couple years. You know what I mean? And, again, we both had sort of the same inception, and we played a show together. I was the opener or whatever. And it was, like, no different than when I met him back in the day. You know what I mean? Like, he still had the same sort of vision, same sort of heart. Nothing had really changed right there. I'll be honest with you. A lot of the guys that I came with, they're just not around anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't even know if I can verify anybody because most of them are gone. You know what I mean? So I, I will say a guy like Toby, you know, Toby McKeon is what I'm talking about. Toby Mack from DC mm-hmm. Talk has sort of has really done well to, to maintain the same uh, sort of level of what he does. Um, uh, uh, so I found an authentic- authenticity there. Um, but I'll be honest with you, man, for the last two, three years of living the indie life, I've just really been out of that scene. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't really mess with anybody. Um, I'm just busy doing what I do and being who I am. I hear you. And I want to talk about being independent because that is such, I mean, that's definitely the thread here and where I want to end. Yes. Even the BEC side and the Christian side over there, it seems though that you, again, you, you have all the same things that identify in all the other stories, but just in a different kind of world. You have the struggling, yes. the sleeping on floors, the not making money, the trying to make an impact, yes. to try to do things your own way, to cut against the way it's supposed to be done, to feel like an outsider, yes. to make progress, to manage your own career. Just you know, all these things really do sound the same. You even have in there where you're not Christian enough and too Christian, and you had a big run in with assemblies of God. And to me, yeah. that that <laughs> that even really screams this whole thing. It's like people love to divide over the smallest yes. things when they're so the yeah. same. And I noticed that yes. all in music and in all the Christian and post-Christian groups are almost the exact same. And they come from the same place yes. and they identify yep. themselves mainly as where they divide. I find that so bizarre. But here you go, Christian rapper, 16 Dove Award nominations. Tell me yes. about that. For, what is that with you and Assemblies of God? I found that. Oh, man. So, so I, I got booked. I was supposed to be there, about 10,000 kids. I went in, I started doing my thing. And... Essentially, what happened was Gabriel Swagger, the son of Jimmy, grandson of Jimmy Swagger, took the footage, chopped it up, and basically said, "This is why the Assemblies of God has lost their focus." He preached an entire message about me, you name it. And I chose in that moment, rather than going on the offensive with him, as I reached out to him directly, and I had a conversation. And we never really agreed on anything. We just had to eventually agree to disagree. Well, what is his uh, claim? Fact, what bothered him about what you were doing he, at the Assemblies well, of God one, event? I mean, I, at the core of it, he was saying that rap was demonic to begin with. So oh. rap was demonic. So I was, you know, doomed to failure. But the fact that I had a couple little snippets of like secular music that I was using as like a cutaway thing, this was why my methods were, you know, ungodly. And that's not of God. And I just found it was way easier to reason with him from the scriptures versus like trying to hash it out online and we just had to agree to disagree. I just thought this was a teachable moment because you can flash forward seven years now and he's a very different guy, you know, like, man, I'm, I'm in a different place now. He kind of was like, we agree on more than you think I pull. He actually ended up pulling down his message, uh, taking it off the internet after our conversation. So the whole point of that thing was here's someone who, basically labels me as completely demonic, completely ungodly. And rather than me trying to bang back publicly, I said, let's just talk about this Mm one-on-one. And while we never had a great resolution, we at least had a mutual respect. And with that, eventually came reconciliation years down the road. But these are the things people don't see. They just want, they just want drama. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but I had, you know, constantly had to deal with people that misunderstood me. And I found it was just better to talk to them one-on-one. And it, it tended to, at the very least, I felt like on my, on my conscience, I did it the right way. I like uh, that but approach. But yeah. 
But you would think that would be, a, you know, it's, you know, kind of biblical. God forbid we actually do it that way. That's not what happens in, in, in hip hop. Hip hop is like, you did something wrong. I don't like you. I write a song about you. Yeah. I'm going dis, to diss the crap out of you. So being independent now, how do you like it and what enabled it? Is it something you always would have wanted to be when it was technologically or marketplace possible? Or is it an unfortunate thing to have to be independent? How do you think of that? I, I, honestly, in 2007, I saw the writing on the wall. And I started behaving, even though I still signed a tooth and nail, I started behaving as, a, as an independent artist, you know, and, and I noticed little by little, you know, tooth and nail was doing less and less and less and less, and they had less money to do stuff. And, you know, eventually they end up getting sold. So I'm like, look, I better take, take the reins right now and make sure my fall is, is padded. Um, so I can do that, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And I'll be honest with you, I'm making more money now. I have infinite more creative control. I can literally do whatever I want to do and the fans fund it. You know, I've ran three or four different crowdfunding, all funded anywhere between a hundred to 200%. I've released a documentary, a book. I've released five different projects, you know, all in the span of two years. And I literally can do whatever I want to do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's what every artist strives. It's what every artist strives to do, but rappers don't think like that. Like this is, this is a very DIY indie alternative thing i'll be honest maybe i learned some of that from the tooth and nail world yes no doubt well hip-hop has such a neat uh interface with the rest of of the music world and culture and it's got this combination of being diy and soundcloud rappers and hustling their cds and stuff i know you know that that's how i think of you as a guy in the 90s pushing cds at the mall probably um but that's what i picture in my head at least but there's that's always a big DIY side of hip hop, but also they like yes. uh, hip hop also has this really bling bling and high money and getting taken care yes. of and being the artist and the rock star thing too, but in a different way. So, but you know, yes. there's it's the real the tension that's that's really exciting about indie bands and rap and everything is the tension between being a rock star and being a real dude and that you can cross over is kind of what the fact that you can be a nobody and then become a somebody, but then keep it real. That's never really existed before, and that's what's so cool about the DIY yep. scenes is you can – it's just kind of up to you. I mean, you can be a small-time band and act like a rock star or or not, and maybe it's cool if you do. Maybe it's not, but you know, to be able to cross through those boundaries is uh, something that hip-hop does in a unique way, I think. Yeah, and hip-hop is great at eating itself alive. Like They do really a lot of dumb stuff that I learned from their mistakes, and, and I always just try to make myself a student. So like – um, you know, watching what those, you know, these tooth and nail solid state guys and their intense connection with their fan base. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, I've got to learn from something there. Like that's there's right. something that they're doing. That's right. That they may not sell as much, but these bands bought everything they have. They sell everything they have. They're passionate about every bit of the lyrics. I'm like, I got to figure out how to infuse that. And so, yeah, man, like I'm, I'm a product of that tooth and nail culture on so many levels. Yo, yo, I like some fun and some bloody water. I'm coming nicely with the blob, not giving praise to the eternal Jaja, eternal father, flowing in the slipping water. You rhyme to caca. My name is Jonathan Moore from Salisbury, Maryland. I'm a labeled member, and my favorite tooth and nail band of all time is tied between Project 86 and Dead Poetic. Matt Carter is our host. Editing and sound design by Melanie Studley. Story by Matt Carter. Production manager is Riva Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Evil. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Tyson Paoletti, and Marshall Primus at Tooth and Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by members of the label community on Patreon. If you are interested in becoming a title sponsor for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash label. Mine. I find I say the mother come once again, I cry some man, I suffer